0: Welcome to the audio edition of the Bylines Network.
1: In here you'll find four articles from different publications in the network, read by our team of readers. Thank you for our, our writers. Thank you to our writers for
0: writing them and to our readers for recording them. We hope you enjoy. The
2: Conservative government's draft election bill will require voters to prove their identity, ideally via a photographic ID. This will be required before receiving an electoral ballot paper and is a striking example of the recent tendency to assume that citizens are potentially untrustworthy. It also shifts the onus to prove identification onto the individual via their relationship with the central state rather than the local community. The paramount importance of the photograph is a departure from the historical norms of identification to establish rights in Britain. Historically, we, the British, have relied on our communities for identification. In the 19th century, when the concept of the electoral register was first introduced, it was not up to the individual registering to prove their identity or right to vote. Instead, the register was a public document. Others in the community could scrutinise it and then object to the including an individual if they thought the latter did not have that right. Similarly, when old-age pensions were first introduced in 1911, the elderly proved their identity via recommendation from a local person of authority in the community. After the First World War, the Treasury suggested fingerprinting all old-age pensioners for identification purposes. That imposition was opposed by the Ministry of Pensions and the War Office as un-British and as treating citizens as criminals. Photographs on documents were a particularly alien concept in more ways than one. In 1835, the newly independent country of Belgium requested that all foreign governments supply details such as age, height and hair colour on the passports they issued. In the resulting exchange, the then British Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, described the passport system as repugnant and the request for personal particulars offensive and degrading. If the Belgians wanted to destroy their tourist industry, Palmerston thundered that was their own choice. A viewpoint that the current British administration would find incomprehensible. It was not until the First World War that the British began to issue passports with photographs. That was part of an international movement to regulate population movements during the shift to total warfare. The British introduced passport photographs only in agreement with everyone else. But what they did not do was to introduce photographs on internal documents. Even during the two world wars, identity documents held by most people did not contain a picture. During the period 1939 to 1951, the only form of personal identification was a signature. The photographic driving licence did not appear until 1997 and only replaced a green paper licence in 2015. This avoidance of photographic ID did not apply to foreigners or aliens in the UK who had to carry photographic ID from 1914 onwards. The British also introduced photographic ID for Chinese coolies working in the colonies, then introduced them for South African labourers in mines in the early 20th century. They were mirroring other colonial powers, such as the French in Algiers and the Japanese in Taiwan, either the foreigner in their midst or their natives in the empire. The government's proposals in the 2021 election bill shift our context in the community to our recognition via centrally created documents, such as passports and driving licences. It is also a replacement of identification by personal recommendation or affirmation, by identification via the body. These changes are potentially moving us all into a world of digital identity at a time of rapidly innovating facial recognition, data scraping and artificial intelligence gathering, which could create digital profiles of us. Uncontrolled and unknown by many in the community, new forces are joining up data potentially to use it against us. African countries are already experimenting with facial recognition systems at the ballot box. In the USA, the police already have access to some 180 million driver's license photographs, which are being compared to criminal ID data sets via facial recognition. The American police do not have to worry about the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, which limits such use of personal images. It is just this GDPR which the present government wishes to water down. Like opening Pandora's box, we do not know what these proposed changes will bring longer term.
0: Suffolk County Council's Send Failures Exposed After Damning Report Pupils are inappropriately placed, data inconsistent and at times misleading. Schools described receiving sensitive documents, which they did not feel they should have seen. Suffolk County Council published an independent report into some elements of its special educational needs and disability services, also known as SEND. Overseen by a team from Lincolnshire, the 21 page report revealed a lengthy list of failings. It is a damning read, but its findings will come as little surprise to the families who have been desperately seeking change for years. It is they who have had to endure long weary battles just to get the support that they need. It is not the first report of this nature. Two and a half years ago, Ofsted and the CQC published their re-inspection into Suffolk Send Services, which came to equally scathing conclusions. However, for hundreds, perhaps even thousands of children and their families across the county, there has been little improvement in their lived experiences. As ITV Anglia's Rob Setchel said, you only need to listen to the parents to see the human cost of this. While this report is a vindication of what families have been saying for some time, it will only be of limited consolation. It will not replace the lost learning or long periods of social isolation. It cannot compensate for the exhaustion, stress and emotional turmoil that has been suffered. It will not unpick the damage caused by the days, weeks, months, sometimes even years worth of torment. In ITV Anglia's report, Mother Kerry-Ann Y said, we're treated with contempt, we're discriminated against, and we're literally made to feel like we're stupid. The extraordinary courage it takes for parents to take on a council, especially publicly, should not be underestimated. They are taking on a cause wider than just their own, with the experiences of others added to theirs. They are thrust into a spotlight that they never sought, into the local newspaper, onto the radio and even onto TV. They share deep, personal, painful stories to a wide audience. When considered alongside the pressures that families are already contending with, it is nothing short of heroic. Suffolk County Council limited the scope of this report. The criticisms highlighted reflect only part of the systemic problems that exist. While communication with families is important, it is the quality and accessibility of provision that is critical. Family campaign groups have called for an independent legal audit. However, Suffolk County Council rejected that in favour of a review that was restricted only to their communication with families. Some of the findings of the report indicate why the local authority may have been reluctant to embark on a review that would have led to full disclosure. It said some of the reasons Suffolk County Council have for refusing to assess are open to legal challenge. There is an issue of values here too. As I've written about before, Suffolk's SEND crisis is unlikely to improve until the deep-rooted culture problems prevalent at Suffolk County Council are resolved. When it comes to the local authority's ability to fulfil its statutory responsibilities, there seems to be a wish to avoid scrutiny, rather than a desire to get things right for children and families. If Suffolk County Council wants to drive improvements, then they must prioritise listening to families and conduct a full investigation, irrespective of the legal or public relations fallout that may result. Suffolk Parent Carer Network (SPCN) closed earlier this year, with a lack of progress on SEND issues and the absence of genuine cooperation and co-production from Suffolk County Council cited as some of the key reasons. Lincolnshire's report mirrors SPCN's concerns and reiterates what should be common practice. Co-production is the cornerstone for the way local areas should work with children and young people the SEND and their families. Given this, it is discouraging and worrying that Suffolk County Council have written their own action plan seemingly without the involvement of a range of partners, parents and children and young people. Co-production has to mean just that. It cannot just be a buzzword. Families have to be central too and play an active role in any work going forward. Yet after being largely sidelined in the formation of the review itself, families played no part in the action plan produced in its aftermath. In the latest Children and Young People Board update, a recent Department for Education revisit is cited. Even when allowing for poor minute taking, the DfE's initial response to the review came across as blasé in the face of such a damning report. DfE advisor noted the findings from the independent review could apply to many other local authority areas and the context of a near doubling of EHCPs over the past five years in Suffolk. It begs the question, If such troubling findings are commonplace throughout the country, why is the DfE content to be little more than bystanders? Thousands of children and families are suffering the consequences of shoddy practices, yet the DfE are essentially shrugging their shoulders and saying, that's the way it is. While in no way absolving Suffolk County Council and other local authorities of their failures, the government has largely ignored, if not compounded, the SEND crisis. Suffolk County Council may have offered an apology, but we've been here before. These issues have been raised for years. We have seen equally condemning reports come and go. Yet improvements have been limited and glacial, and all too often Suffolk County Council have attempted to deflect from their failings rather than putting families first. Let's hope this is a watershed moment. Families cannot continue to suffer in this way.
1: review of Memories of a Kentish Village, a Childhood Spent in More Innocent Times by John Bennett, foreword by Sir Michael Morpurgo OBE, published in June 2021. The review is written by Charlotte Le Bon and read by Steve Whitley. John grew up in the parish of Ickham, south of Canterbury, in a rural working-class family. Most of his relatives lived nearby. This book consists of his memories of childhood. As he puts it, Portrait of John Bennett. He writes, I think we were lucky to have been children during the 60s and 70s. Life was so much easier and simpler for youngsters. No social media, no mobile phones, no influencing TV. Nonetheless, from his description, the adults were very hard-working. They faced domestic challenges that are hardly conceivable to Kent residents today, who live in houses with all mod cons. Also, it's worth noting that children like John of that generation used to get ill quite frequently, either from illnesses that are now vaccinated against, like MMR, or more likely just because living conditions were not as sanitary. In early childhood, his home was a tied estate cottage in Bramling. It was so badly maintained that his cot once fell through the floor to the room below. As there was no electricity, lighting consisted of gas lamps on the walls of the living room. Candles or paraffin lamps lit the rest of the house. Radio, the one source of evening entertainment, was powered by a large battery. The living room was the only heated room, with a coal fire. One took a bath in a tin bath in front of the fire, with water boiled on the kitchen stove. The toilet was outside. John's maternal grandparents had known better in Folkestone, electricity and flush toilets, but after their house had been bombed during the war, they'd had to live in one of a row of cottages in the village without electricity. Toilets were in sheds outside, with buckets that had to be emptied into pits dug in nearby fields. Throughout rural Kent, cesspits in the garden were the norm, as I recall from my own childhood. A lorry came round every year to pump out the contents. Main drainage came to the villages only in the 70s. The village economy, as described in this book, consisted of several independent shops in each village. Grocery, tea rooms, sweet shop and so on. There was also a working mill a working forge and a pub supplied from the brewery with barrels on a horse-drawn wagon. Most adults worked in the farms around the villages. Traffic was much less than nowadays, as most people walked or cycled to the shops. John recalls an aged aunt who used to cycle more than 20 miles to visit relatives. The children took the buses to local schools. John's father, Fred Bennett, took over the Ickham General Store in 1971 and ran it for some 20 years. The shop had been run by the Coombs family for 200 years. Selling groceries involved scooping up dry goods from wholesale bags, weighing them and putting them in paper bags for the customer. Fruit and vegetables were mostly seasonal, much from the local farms, including mushrooms and watercress. Meat was cut and sliced in front of the customer. John's mother used to cook whole gammon to be hung from the storeroom ceiling until sold in slices in the shop. Deliveries would be made in a van, or even in snowy winters, by a sledge from the van. I'm surprised that John didn't recall grocery delivery by bicycle, which was the norm for some products like bread in our village. Supermarkets with pre-packaged food eventually took over the customers as people increasingly bought cars and were happy to travel in them for their shopping. The village shops closed in the 1990s and thus began our more planet-harming consumerist shopping habits. John's descriptions of how he played also show the contrast with today's children. He writes, We did our own thing, amused ourselves while our parents were working. They were allowed to play in the local woods so long as their parents were told where they'd gone. The same in my childhood. The boys once earned some pocket money by trapping eels in an old tyre. They made a raft to float on the stream. They tobogganed down snowy slopes on an old tin tray. As he got to his teenage years, John took an interest in how radio works. By the age of fourteen, he could drive a tractor and use a shotgun. He took a motor scooter to pieces to repair it. In The Air Cadets he learned to fly. But in the end, John worked in the motor trade, along with a spell in the army. This book is well worth reading and has been called a Kent version of From Larkrise to Candleford. It has a foreword by the famous children's writer Michael Morpurgo who was a schoolteacher in nearby Wickham Brew, in which he says, We need to understand the lives of those who came before us. That was a review of Memories of a Kentish Village, a childhood spent in more innocent times, by John Bennett. The review was written by Charlotte Le Bon and read by Steve Whitley.
3: Whisper of the Heart Heartwarming Moments from Studio Ghibli by Katie Morn, read by Janine Burkett Whisper of the Heart is a romantic movie from the renowned Studio Ghibli that portrays two young people following their artistic passions and falling in love. The film represents artists starting out in their fields who wonder if they have the skills to make it as artists. Artists dreams Other Studio Ghibli movies have explored similar themes in more metaphorical ways, but Whisper of the Heart directly shares the story of the struggle artists face with their creativity and passion. The movie also portrays a lovely romance between Shizuku and Seiji, who encourage each other to pursue their passions, even if it means they can't see each other all the time. The teenagers care about each other's goals and futures more than their own desires to spend time together, because they both understand the struggles of achieving your dreams as artists. Female lead in Whisper of the Heart. Shizuku goes against the trope of the perfectly organised straight A stuck up female leads that are often seen in teen romance movies. Like a lot of Ghibli's heroines, she is messy, disorganised, loud and complains a lot. She's a typical young girl, which makes her both realistic and relatable. It's not often that girls with these characteristics are seen at the centre of children's animated films. Instead of trying to protect the unrealistic image of what girls are supposed to be like, Ghibli movies represent real people. Most importantly, Shizuku speaks her mind, whether that's to her teachers, her family or her classmates. Shizuku doesn't hesitate to tell the boys at school when they're being annoying and she sticks up for herself. Struggling Artists Seiji dreams of moving to Italy to craft instruments, but doesn't feel like he's good enough. He practices every day so that he can eventually go there and prove himself, though he has no idea if it will work out. Seiji is dedicated to trying to achieve his goals rather than worrying about the outcome. Shizuku is a writer who struggles with her confidence and wonders if her work is good enough. She experiences writer's block and loses her passion for a while, doubting her abilities and wondering if she is wasting her time. This is a very common occurrence for any kind of artist, often discussed by Studio Ghibli artist Hayao Miyazaki. Shizuku becomes more motivated to keep working on her writing when she is praised by her peers, especially after being encouraged and mentored by musician and artist Mr Nishi. Whisper of the Heart brings comfort to those who are experiencing a roadblock with their passion. It details the ups and downs that come with being creative, from the moments when you feel most motivated to the moments where you want to give up. The main message is that you should continue at your own pace and keep practising to get to where you want to in the end. Wholesome Romance in Whisper of the Heart Whisper of the Heart portrays the blossoming romance between Shizuku and Seiji, two high school students who share their love of reading. Their romance is very innocent and sweet, driven by shared passions. Seiji tries to get Shizuku's attention by borrowing every book in their school library because he knows that she loves to read. Shizuku sees Seiji's name at the top of the sign-out sheets of every book she borrows and finds herself wondering who he is. Studio Ghibli is great at creating heartwarming moments from small gestures like these. Seiji teases Shizuku when they first meet. But they soon fall for each other, the way that young people do when they have no experience with relationships yet. This being said, they share a healthy relationship, encouraging each other's passions. They both work hard to each individually achieve their goals. Though they're so young, they focus on growing as individuals so they can see each other get to where they want in the future.